Will you please turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 55. This will be our Old Testament reading, and then our sermon text will be the beginning of Acts 8. Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be. It goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Amen. Let's turn now to Acts chapter 8. At the end of the account of the stoning of Stephen, Luke concludes that account and turns to uh, the next movement in his narrative with chapter 8, verse 1, where it says, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, 
paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Amen. You may be seated. During the Middle Ages, one of the many corruptions that plagued the church in Europe was the practice of what people called simony. Uh, simony is the buying and selling of church offices. Uh, I, I pay this amount of money, and the bishop will make me a priest, or the cardinal maybe will make me a bishop, or maybe the pope will make me a cardinal. And um, this could turn out to be actually a pretty good investment. You buy the church office, but uh, that office comes with what's called a, a benefice. So you've, you've paid some money, but, but now you get an income. The benefice is an income. So that initial outlay of money kind of pays for itself over time, right? You can see uh, the corruption that this brought into the church. Now, to be fair, uh, the official church teaching was solidly against this all along, and there were efforts to uh, reform all of this, to put a stop to it during the Middle Ages themselves. Uh, but that didn't mean that people didn't keep doing it. And you can see all the incentives that there would have been uh, to continue the practice. 
for those who cared more about personal gain than about the true ministry of the gospel. Um, there's even a story, I was not able to verify, but um, yeah, there was a story about a guy in the late, te- late 1400s who, who preached in Rome against uh, simony, and uh, one day they found him in his bed, 20 stab wounds, like the mafia or something. Um, and this was just a piece of the, the big picture of the corruption of the whole papal system generally that eventually gave rise to the Reformation. Um, anyway, that practice of simony gets its name from this morning's sermon text. It's called simony because it's named after this infamous Simon Magus or Simon the Magician. Um, and I want to look at this passage in three parts this morning, which we're going to call first, Scattering the Seed, verses 1 to 8, second, Reaping the Harvest, verses 9 to 13, and then third, Guarding the Gift, verses 14 to 25. So scattering the Seed, Reaping the Harvest, and Guarding the Gift. All right, first, Scattering the Seed. Uh, verses 1 through 8 describe for us the aftermath of the martyrdom of Stephen. Um, and <clears throat> Luke describes that aftermath as a scattering of the church, which sounds like, and in many ways, was a, a bad thing. Um, but really, Stephen's murder resulted in two things. One was this outbreak of broader persecution in Jerusalem, but as a consequence of this, surely an unintended consequence from anybody's point of view, there was also an outbreak of something else. There was an outbreak of the gospel outside of Jerusalem in the surrounding regions. The gospel broke out of Jerusalem as the church was now scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Let's think about that. It's interesting um, that Stephen's death, first of all, was, was not a kind of isolated case of mob violence that was kind of one and done. It was just the beginning of something. It was like the, the beginning of an avalanche. There arose, Luke says, on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. You can kind of imagine a wild animal bending over its victim and then looking up and kind of turning from side to side, looking for its next prey. That's what the rage of this crowd is like. You should never underestimate the power of a crowd uh, to do things even that individuals would never do. People stir each other up. Everybody gets swept along to do what, what maybe they never would have considered doing on their own. And in church history, you frequently see this. You often see persecution coming against the church in waves, suddenly trending. You might say, going viral. Um, this sudden release of violence, uh, sometimes after a long uh, buildup of antagonism and tension, driven by these very kind of mob dynamics. And it all lets loose, and the church endures great suffering for a time, perhaps in a particular place. But it's not just those crowd dynamics that are at work here. That's part of it. But what you see in the crowd is also focused and concentrated in the individual crusade of this one man, this person, Saul. Saul, who had stood, you remember, guarding the clothes of the people who stoned Stephen, uh, who approved of his execution, who now becomes um, 
a major leader of this movement against the Jerusalem Christians. That's something else you see in church history. Sometimes there are the mob dynamics, the crowd dynamics, but other times there are individuals who are particular opponents of the church and the, the, um, the power of, of Satan to oppose God's people is concentrated in that person's leadership and that one person can do great harm. Um, in Galatians 1.13, um, Paul same individual, is later converted, becomes the Apostle Paul. He remembers how he once, he says, persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. That's how he remembers his own attitude. Formerly, he tells Timothy, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. And so here he was, he's convinced at this point that he is doing this for God, and that makes him all the more dangerous. Ravaging the church, says, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison for no other reason that they confess that Jesus Christ is the risen Lord, like Stephen did. But something else happens here that none of the human characters on earth living out this history intended. The persecutors are trying to destroy the church. The church is trying to get away from the persecution. But what's the unintended consequence that comes out of all this? It says they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And then verse 4, those who were scattered did what? They went about preaching the word. Why is that significant? Well, it's important that we read verse 1 and verse 4 in the context of what we've already seen about the structure of, of the book of Acts, as it's outlined for us way back in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 8, remember, Jesus tells the apostles, a very important commission he gives them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. It's Pentecost, chapter 2. And you will be my witnesses, he says where? He says, in Jerusalem, that's chapters 3 through 7, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And so you remember, we talked about those concentric circles that structure the book of Acts. Jerusalem in the center, Judea beyond that, Samaria beyond that, and the end of the earth beyond that. So far then, for seven chapters, um, all the action has been taking place only in the center of those circles, only in the very middle, in Jerusalem. That's as far as the gospel has spread so far. But now, in God's providence and through unexpected circumstances, that is changing. Now Jerusalem is becoming not just the center, but the epicenter. These shock waves of Pentecost are reverberating outward into those next two places that Jesus had put on the church's agenda from the very beginning. That great program for the progress of the gospel, now the gospel is going to Judea and Samaria. Just according to plan. And it's actually the opponents of the church who are causing that plan to be carried out. Amazing. One of the Christians who gets scattered in this way is Philip. And Philip, like Stephen, it's important they're kind of a pair because uh, uh, Philip is also one of the seven, one of those seven deacons, or kind of proto-deacons, perhaps, of chapter 6. Philip, it says, went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And so, like Stephen, his preaching is accompanied also by miraculous signs that, once again, are authenticating his message to this new group of people. 
where the gospel is going for the first time. And the crowds, it says, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so now what has happened already in Jerusalem is now beginning to happen in Samaria. What do these signs mean in Samaria? They mean that the, the signs are authenticating. They're, they're saying to the people there, the kingdom of God has come. Here it is. And it's not just for the Jerusalem Jews. That kingdom and that message of salvation and that lordship of Jesus Christ, the risen king, as for Samaritans too. Uh, now, Samaritans, you may remember uh, from the Gospels, were um, kind of a, a separate religious and ethnic group, um, distinct from the Jews. Uh, and the Samaritans, you think about the parable of the Good Samaritan, the Samaritans um, thought of themselves as the descendants of the ten northern tribes who fell to the Assyrians about 140 years before uh, the southern tribes went into exile in Babylon. And so the the Samaritans like to think of themselves as the real Israelites, well, just like the Jews did. Um, they even had a different place of worship. You may remember they, they rejected Jerusalem and they worshipped instead on Mount Gerizim. Remember that from the story of the woman at the well. We worship on this mountain, you worship on that one. Can you tell me, prophet, which, which one? Um, and uh, in response to this, the, the Jewish people, the people who lived in, in Jerusalem and Judea, Galilee, places like that, they looked uh, down on the Samaritans as impure in terms of their ethnic background, as basically heretics in terms of their religion, and uh, so it would not have been a natural thing in the ordinary course of events for Jews to go to Samaria and interact with Samaritans at all, much less to start including Samaritan people in what has up to this time been an exclusively Jewish community. The church up until now has consisted of all Jews, Jews from around the world, yes, but no Gentiles yet. Not even any Samaritans who are somewhere in between Jew and Gentile, you could think. But now, you see what's happening is that the gospel of the risen Christ is coming to Samaria too. Now, this is not the first time that the Samaritans have encountered the message and the power of Jesus uh, during Jesus' earthly ministry. The Samaritans, uh, like their Jewish counterparts, really, had kind of a mixed record uh, when it came to interacting with Jesus. And uh, looking just at the Gospel of Luke, since it's so closely connected with Acts, in Luke chapter 9, uh, Jesus passes through Samaria himself on his way to Jerusalem. And Luke makes a point of saying, but the people did not receive him. The people of Samaria did not receive Jesus. because Why? Because his face was set toward Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem, so they're thinking, oh, he's going to that place of false worship. Uh, that's, where the, that's the passage where James and John uh, say, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume these Samaritans? And Jesus turns and he rebukes them. He says, no, don't, don't do that. Um, on the other hand, in Luke, though, uh, there's the time when Jesus heals the ten lepers. He heals the ten lepers, and only one comes back to say thank you. And Luke makes a point of saying the one who came back to say thank you to Jesus was a Samaritan. Luke is also the gospel writer who records the parable of the Good Samaritan And in that parable, of course, Jesus really surprises his audience by making the Samaritan the good guy and the Jewish Levite and priest the bad guys in that story. Um, So there are these hints in Luke 
of the future inclusion of the Samaritans, but now it's actually happening. Now the fullness of the gospel has come to the Samaritans, and verse 8 says, So there was much joy in that city. Reminds me of Isaiah 55, where we're reading about how the mountains and the hills will break forth before you, and the trees of the field shall clap their hands. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. That's what it's like for the gospel to go to a new place and for people to rejoice as they hear the message of salvation. And in verse 12, it says, When they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. And this is the second point this morning, which is reaping the harvest. The seed has been scattered, and now the harvest is being gathered in. I'd like to address a major question that arises in verses 14 to 17. Uh, It says, When the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they, Peter and John, laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And so here in Samaria, there seems to be this kind of two-stage experience of these new Samaritan believers. They come to faith in Jesus, and they're baptized at one point. But then at a later time, the apostles come, and they receive the Holy Spirit. And, And some people reading this have come to the conclusion, which I'm going to dissuade you about in a minute. But some people reading this have come to the conclusion that this is is setting a pattern that we should expect to be normal then in the life of new Christians, new believers um, today, in the life of the church in the present time. So the idea is that first you trust in Christ and get saved, and then later you're supposed to seek what what they call a second blessing, uh, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit. There are two very significant problems with this. It's not a biblical understanding of salvation or of the gift of the Spirit. Uh, number one, it conflicts with what the rest of the New Testament teaches very consistently about believers receiving the Holy Spirit. Um, Romans 8, verse 9, for example, says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. You can't belong to Christ without having the Spirit of Christ. That's that's the the ordinary, normal expectation for the church today. Um, Ephesians 1.13 says something similar. It says that when you heard the word of truth, speaking to the Ephesian church now, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Christ, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And so the teaching of the rest of the New Testament is that ordinarily God gives Christians the Holy Spirit at the moment of conversion of conversion. It's not a second blessing that comes later. The second problem with with teaching Christians today to seek a second blessing on the basis of this passage is that it misses the meaning of this passage in the context of the book of Acts. It misses the the unique, once-for-all, unrepeatable nature of this particular historical event. This is not setting up a model for what will always happen in the church. This is something that's happening one time in the church at a major turning point, a major point of transition, a new thing that God is doing once and for all in the church. Um, So remember those concentric circles we talked about, that outline of Acts, that program that Jesus laid out for the extension of the gospel beyond Jerusalem to the end of the earth. Stage one, Jerusalem, and by extension, Judea, which is the region where Jerusalem is located. That's stage one. Stage two, Samaria, where non-Jews are starting to get included. 
and then stage three is the end of the earth. And so what's happening here in Acts chapter 8 is the gospel is advancing decisively to a new stage in that program of the Lord, that the Lord Jesus has laid out. And so the reason for this gap, this unusual gap between the conversion and the receiving the Spirit for the Samaritans is that Christ, who remembers the main character of Acts, acting from his ascended throne in heaven, Christ is emphasizing here that special leap forward that's taking place in his plan for the church and for the gospel. It's as though Pentecost itself is now being expanded to incorporate this new category of people who are part of this exploding kingdom of God that's reaching out to the ends of the earth. First the Jews, next the Samaritans. Later we're going to see the Holy Spirit given along with the gospel to the Gentiles in chapter 10, but that's for another time. But In this chapter, this gap in time between conversion and the outpouring of the Spirit, again, it's not a pattern that we're supposed to follow in the church today or expect in the church today. It's a unique, unrepeatable leap forward in God's plan that happened just once as the gospel came to these Samaritans for the first time. All right, now, um, as the gospel harvest is being gathered in in Samaria, there's a a bad apple in the bunch that's threatening to, to spoil the whole barrel. There was a man named Simon, Luke says, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. There are a couple things about Simon the Magician in this chapter that are a little bit ambiguous. Luke doesn't spell everything out for us. First, we might ask kind of what kind of magician was he? Was he practicing some kind of uh, supernatural, preternatural magic by some demonic power? Maybe. Or was he just kind of your garden variety trickster doing illusions and tricking people, kind of like a snake oil salesman? trying to get power over people through, through tricks. Uh, that could be as well. Um, Luke doesn't explain because it, it doesn't really matter for the point that he's making in the story. Either way, the point is that um, before the gospel gets to Samaria, Simon has been operating there already as kind of a counterfeit Christ. A counterfeit Christ. That's what Simon is. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. That's how they think of this man. They paid attention to him for a long time because he had amazed them with his magic. And you might think, oh, how silly and kind of primitive these Samaritans were to, to think so much of this, this person they, they consider some kind of, some kind of wizard. But we've uh, got to be careful here because every civilization, including our own you know, modern, enlightened, secular one, every civilization has wizards. In our case, they tend to be wizards of uh, business or wizards of technology, industry, wizards of finance, wizards of sports, wizards of Hollywood. And listen, people pay attention to them from the least to the greatest, whether they deserve it or not, whether they have anything constructive to say or not or any expertise. People pay attention to them. Why? Because we're amazed at the things they can do. Things that we think of as really great. And what we think of as really great says a lot about our culture. We've got to think, to what extent are we partaking in that 
embracing of the wizards of our day and age. Well, when the people in Samaria start turning to Jesus and joining the church, um, Simon kind of goes along with this new movement, right? And this is the second thing that's kind of ambiguous about Simon. Uh, people disagree about what was Simon at any, at any point in this story, maybe at the beginning, maybe at the end, um, was he at any point really a believer, really saved? And when it says he believed, it's, it's quite possible there that Luke is not meaning to tell us anything about the inward state of his heart, that he's, he's meaning to communicate that he did all the same things outwardly that all the other believing Samaritans did. Uh, he professed faith. He got baptized. What we do know for sure is that his actions are very much at odds with a true profession of faith, which Peter very sternly warns him about in the most serious of terms. Peter's basically telling him, you are not acting like a Christian. You're like acting like the opposite. And um, so his, his, his life is not consistent with his profession of faith. And it's unclear whether at the end of the story he really repents or not. And I think Luke leaves that hanging on purpose. Because Simon's eternal destiny isn't what we're supposed to be learning from this story. It's something else. Let's see what that is. Verse 18, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And what you can see here about Simon is that he is viewing the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit through the lens of magic. We want to think, what is magic? Of course, we think about all the... Uh, trappings of magic uh, and magicians and so on, and many fictional, many in fairy tales, some uh, in real life of various kinds, trickery or um, superstition um, and the occult. But what is magic in its essence? When the Bible opposes magic, what is it? What's at the heart of the magic that the Bible speaks against? Magic is where people try to manipulate the supernatural, to accomplish their own purposes. Magic is when people try to manipulate the supernatural to accomplish their own purposes. And that's something that the Old Testament prophets and the law, um, the law speaks against, the law of Moses speaks against, and the Old Testament prophets frequently rebuked Israel for. And that was treating God the same way, treating the Lord, one true God, the same way the pagan nations around them treated their gods. Pagan Canaanite religion was magical religion. Treating God not as a person to be loved and worshipped and obeyed, but a person to be summoned and used to do what they want done. And boy, this is really relevant to the way that we think about our relationship with God. Do you think of God as somebody who's there to do your bidding? Someone to be summoned and used to do what you want. That's... That's a magical approach to religion, and it's something the Bible forbids and condemns. It's not Christianity, that's for sure. We can all be tempted to think of God and our relationship with him in a magical way instead of a gospel way, where in the gospel, we are here at his disposal. We are here to do his bidding because of all that he's already done for us in Christ. Okay, so now let's look at Peter's reply where he, he says, Simon, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. 
And, and see, this is Simon's fundamental error. He is trying to buy something that cannot be bought. And it cannot be bought for two reasons. The first one is because it is absolutely priceless. The gift of the Holy Spirit is a gift of infinite value. Limitless value. No ceiling. The other reason is because that gift of the Holy Spirit is a gift that the Lord Jesus Christ gives freely to all who ask for it. You can't buy it because it's not for sale. It's a gift that can only be freely given and freely received. And that's what we saw earlier in Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy and wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, God says. Eat what's good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live as God gives freely to you. And again, from Isaiah 55, you can see how Simon doesn't seem to understand that his thoughts are not the Lord's thoughts, that the Lord's ways are not his ways, that the Lord's ways are as high above Simon's. The Lord's thoughts are as high above Simon's thoughts as the heavens are above the earth. There's just no comparison. Simon needs to seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he's near. Peter says, Simon needs to forsake his way. This unrighteous man needs to forsake his own thoughts and return to the Lord that the Lord might have compassion on him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. He will abundantly pardon, but you have to repent. You have to turn away from that magical thinking about God and embrace this free gift. See, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit like all the other blessings of salvation through Christ, the forgiveness of sins, that forever life with God, all of it is an utterly free gift of God's grace. That's what grace really is, after all. It means a gift. You cannot buy it, both because it's priceless and because it's not for sale. Now, cynicism might kick in. You might think, well, nothing's really free. Right? Nothing's really free. Well, and that's true. Grace is the same way. It's, it's free to you. <laughs> we say it's free, we mean it's free to you. It's free to sinners. That does not mean it's not costly. It simply means that the cost was paid by someone else. So the cost was paid by the Lord Jesus. Grace has sometimes been described as, an, as explained as, as an acronym, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. Because all through his life, and especially on the cross, Jesus was paying the very costliest possible price for your salvation. Nothing could possibly be more valuable than the life and the death of the Son of God, crucified to pay for your sin, to purchase your forgiveness, to earn and win for you this gift the Lord Jesus was giving the people of Samaria, the gift of the Holy Spirit. You could never buy that. You could work forever. You could work for eternity and never be able to earn any of those things. You could pay everything that you have or ever will have in this life and, and never make the down payment. See, when we miss this, when we try to 
earn what God is trying to give us. As, th- as though there's something that we could do to obligate God to give us these gifts. We're treating the gospel like magic instead of like grace. And that was Simon's mistake. He thought that he could buy God's gift. That he could give something to God and get something in return. And Peter makes it very clear that is not the attitude of a Christian. You think that way, it means your heart is not right before God and you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And again, I don't know, I just don't know if, if Simon repented like Peter told him to do. I don't know if we'll see Simon in heaven. But I do know that if he kept up this way of thinking, we won't. But much more seriously, if you keep up this way of thinking, then you won't. And that's, that's the point for us here. Not to treat the gospel the way that Simon did. I don't know how Simon's story ends, but I do know this. That by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. A gift that you can never buy because Jesus already did it. He paid it all. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Jesus did indeed pay it all, and all to him we owe. Sin left a crimson stain on our hearts, but he, by his precious blood, has washed it white as snow. Lord, forgive us for the times when we treat you um, like a, a magical God who will do what we want if we do the right things. And Lord, turn our hearts to you once again in repentance and faith, to you, the gracious God. God who gives us what we could never earn. Lord, we thank you for this precious gift. Help us to receive it with gratitude and faith this day and throughout our lives so we might persevere in your grace so you might keep us safe all the way to the end. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.